Episode five of Obi-Wan Kenobi hits plot point two and heads for its season finale and possible series finale. We actually, I'm not clear on whether or not this is getting renewed for a second season or more episodes or any of that. The question is, was it any good? And who's qualified to say whether or not something is actually good? In an era where we can listen to anyone's opinion at any time on social media, whose opinions matter most? Do some matter more than others? That is what we are talking about on today's show, both who's got a good opinion and also I will be breaking down episode five of Obi-Wan Kenobi. This will be a spoiler filled show for episode five of Obi-Wan Kenobi. You might want to watch or listen after you have seen that show. Welcome to the Story Geek Show. I'm Jay Shear, co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter and Time Slingers. The full cast audiobook of Death of a Bounty Hunter is available via our website on Audible, audiobooks.com, Downpour, Apple Books, just about any place you can get an audiobook, you will be able to find Death of a Bounty Hunter there. Support the show by purchasing a copy. Links are in the description. We've been getting really great feedback on it, and I would love to have you experience that. Now, joining me on today's show, frequent guests of the show, Mr. Josh Taylor. How are you, sir? I mean, you know, I'm basically like the main host of the show now. So. <laughs> yeah, you are. What are we talking about today? Can you lead me through the rest of the show? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, give me your thoughts on uh, the amount of times you've heard Kate Bush's running up the hill. Oh, my gosh. In the past, like, <laughs> month. Well, you, and you, okay, so let, let's just say this. I am going to do a series on Stranger Things season four coming up. And, and season five, because season five is right around the corner. Or season 4.2 or whatever the, whatever the hell they're calling these things. Um, or actually, they did get renewed for season five. Well, there. This is the. But this is the last. Like this. This last thing is the last season, though, right? Oh. I'm pretty sure. I, I heard it was the last. I've heard that they've renewed it again. Oh man. my gosh! I have not heard that. I think Netflix has that a out. cash cow. They can't let that go. They're That's true, especially when they're suffering so much uh, with yeah. subscribers. Um, but you haven't seen season four yet. We're both doing a rewatch. I've not. No, I've. I'm currently halfway through season two. Yeah, I just uh, Jessica and I just finished season two, literally last night. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who listen to the show frequently, uh, Josh Taylor is the leader of Modern Mouse, which is a uh, basically a look at culture and society through a Disney lens using the Disney umbrella. So he's talking about all all things Disney, including uh, Marvel, Lucasfilm. All of everything that could possibly be under the Disney umbrella, Mr. Josh Taylor is talking about that and then trying to define um, how culture fits in with that as well. You can follow him at at Modern Mouse Josh. What did I miss? Yeah. What did I miss? No, that was great. I wouldn't <laughs> consider me a leader considering like it's just me most of the time. <laughs> you so lead yourself, brother. <laughs> I do lead. I do lead myself. <laughs> That's right. In wayward direction. <laughs> Well, one of the reasons I'm having Josh on the show is because we're going to spend the first half of the show. Josh has not seen. So so, so for the first half of the show, don't spoil Josh in the comments. If you show up and comment on something on this live show, we are running the show live. Um, because Josh has not seen episode five of Obi-Wan Kenobi just yet. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, this idea about the fandom and what the fandom looks like today. Josh did a really interesting video that I want to get into a little bit more about the fandom. Then I also want to talk about the takes that the fandom has and some of the words and phrases that they use 
we're we're acting like there are people that are qualified <laughs> to give their opinion on things that I'm not sure they're qualified to give those opinions on. So we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. Um, and uh, so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting show. But then after that, I will get into episode five of Kenobi, and we'll cover that. I'll just do that solo. Josh will go watch the show while while we're talking about it, and uh, and we'll go from there. And the first thing I want to start with, uh, two things I want to start with really quickly. First of all, a big thank you and shout out to um, everybody over at Hidden Brain, um, particularly uh, Tara Boyle. Uh, the, if you listen to the latest Hidden Brain episode, the episode from June 14th, um, June 13th, maybe I think it was when it actually came out. It, if you listen to the final minute, you will hear that the unsung heroes um, for that segment, they do, they, they have a whole unsung heroes podcast that they do, by the way, but the unsung heroes that they reference at the very, very end of that podcast, just the last, the final minute well, was me and my wife. <laughs> we, we, we get, we were mentioned um, because we, they reached out to us, Tara reached out to us and had a conversation with us about um, publishing. Uh, Cause both my wife and I, um, I've self-published a bunch and my wife has helped other people publish through traditional publishers or self-publishing. Um, she's a she's an editor, and uh, that was just really fun to to get to talk to them. It's really fun to talk to. The Hidden Brain is one of the top thirty podcasts in the United States, and I believe one of the top fifty podcasts in the world. And just to be able to have them uh, to have a conversation with them, and let me just tell you how generous Tara Boyle was with her time. Um, we talked to them about publishing, and then I said to Tara, "Would you mind talking to me? I have a full cast audiobook coming out." I'd love to get your opinions on some of how the industry works in regards to podcasting and whether or not this could be sold to a podcasting company at some point in time. And she was amazingly generous with her time and I just got so much out of it. So I just have to say a huge thank you to everybody over at Hidden Brain for including Jessica and I in that in that little segment. Um, and then Josh Shaler, we're going to get into before we before we jump into uh, critique of things and what it means to be a critic. Uh, we did get an email. I got an email from Robert McClure. So, Robert, thank you for sending me an email. Anybody uh, listening can send me an email at hi at reclamationsociety.com. And, you know, if it's, as, if it's as insightful as what Robert sent me or even far less insightful, I will discuss it on the podcast. So make sure you send me an email about that. So, Josh, we'll get into this real quick because this is about a past episode of Kenobi. Okay. Uh, this is from Robert. Robert's these are Robert's words. First of all, I love the podcast. I have really enjoyed the recent Obi Wan breakdown episodes. Thank you, Robert, for that. He says I especially appreciate your insights insight into why reclusive Obi Wan works and reclusive Luke didn't land for everyone. I think you are mostly right that it just simply was not set up well. I have an additional thought on the matter, however. I feel that Luke's emotional spiral is not as organic as the writers intended it to be. It is not so much a problem of storytelling as it is a problem of psychology. Someone like Luke would not grow cynical towards others having experienced what he did. Rather, Luke Skywalker, given his personality and emotional inclinations, would have certainly become depressed and forlorn, but not cynical. The real Luke Skywalker would have walked past Rey and tried to ignore her, but not take the lightsaber and throw it. He would have reluctantly trained her, but not made fun of her by slapping her hand. His natural um, declination, 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 declination. I don't know. I don't know that word that well. You're smarter than me, Robert. His natural declination would have involved more inward repression and less outward aggression. I could be way off, but that is my opinion. Obi-Wan, by the way, has was handled very well by his writers keep up the great work thank you robert for that email 
What do you think about that, Josh? Do you agree with Robert that it's not only a problem of storytelling, but also somewhat a problem of the psychology of the character? Um, I mean, that's an opinion for sure. Mm -hmm. And, and I have no problem with that opinion. I think that we all certainly had a different trajectory in mind for uh, a Luke Skywalker, mm. you know, post Return of the Jedi. Um, and years went by decades went by uh, <laughs> before we really had an answer if we and I'm sure most like most of us thought, we'll never have an answer. Um, you know, so we just made up what we thought he was going to be and become afterwards. Um, I was fine. I, like, listen, I'm a last Jedi person. I love the last Jedi. I actually like what they did with Luke Skywalker. I don't have a problem with people saying that they don't like what they did with Luke Skywalker. Mm. Um, because in your mind, you've, you've made this up and I understand what you're saying about the psychology there with Obi-Wan being on the same trajectory, uh, same trajectory. Mm -hmm. I kind of like it. I, I like Obi-Wan feeling like both Luke Skywalker mm -hmm. in a way and also feeling like the Mandalorian um, because it's such a familiar trope. It's now it's like a trope within a trope. Um, <laughs> I, I have been honest. I think I've been on this podcast before being honest and saying this, and that I think the best thing Star Wars could do is to ditch all of the legacy characters mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. do something new. The Mandalorian was a fresh new thing. Yeah, but since we have Obi Wan Kenobi, I've been enjoying it, and um, I don't have a problem with either character Luke or Obi Wan mm. kind of feeling the way that they feel. Yeah, so so my take, and just to, to recap, my, what my take was really quickly that Robert's referring to is that when you leave Obi Wan Kenobi in Revenge of the Sith. And when you pick him up again in A New Hope, there is uh, 20 years of time approximately in there, maybe a little less than 20 years. Um, and in that amount of time, uh, the Empire has gained complete control of the galaxy. And if you go all the way back to Revenge of the Sith, that was the turning moment when um, Palpatine essentially starts to control everything, right? So he goes from being a senator to by the end of that film having complete control of the galaxy or almost complete control and we can see that he by the time a new hope starts basically controls 95 percent of the galaxy um that's that's not an official t uh, statistic that's just my interpretation of what right you know, he didn't have he didn't have all the outer rim and stuff but he has a lot of it so um so in in that period of time obi-wan kenobi has seen uh, the the greatest moments um, of the Jedi Republic and Jedi Council and Republic uh, branching out across the the universe, almost the near the near eradication of the Sith to a degree. Before all of this pops up, um, they really they really have control, and it completely flips by the time we get to see him in A New Hope. So my point had been, you know, the last time we saw Obi Wan, he was watching Anakin. Burn, limbless and <laughs> limbless Anakin is burning on Mustafar. And so it's not hard for us to think that there would be a severe emotional trauma to losing his friends, to all of the people around him dying who were Jedi, 
to his his brother Anakin Skywalker being severely severely wounded if not going to about to die at his hands um, and the thing that he needed to feel so it's not it's not so my point was it's not hard to see a depressed hiding fearful Obi-Wan in my opinion because we have the building blocks of how he has to get to these different places um, now we do we do know that he he is different than when he when he starts a new hope than he is when he starts the Obi-Wan series so we can tell that there's going to be some sort of development in him through the course of the series. So that's kind of interesting as well. Right. My point with Luke had been that the last time we saw Luke, he was like, I'm off to build. Um, yeah, he didn't say this, but he was off to build the order back. It was like, he was off to help. If you stopped watching at return of the Jedi, you would assume that Luke would Luke and Leia would go on to build up the Republic back to what the Republic used to be. Now they've got a long ways to get there because the Empire still controls 95% of the galaxy. It's just they don't have a Death Star and they don't have an Emperor and they don't have Vader anymore. So they're they're severely limited. But and of course there's lots of legends that cover that. And there's now even some um some some Disney produced properties that cover some of that time frame. But it's what's difficult is when you see Luke, first of all, from a storytelling standpoint, you get the crawl in uh, in Force Awakens. Then you get a few lines here and there from characters saying, uh, like, Luke, don't worry about Luke, like, blah, 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 blah. Like, he's off and he's doing his thing. So we know that Luke has removed himself from society. So now the question is, when we see him again, why in the world would Luke do something like this, right? And then we see why Luke would do something like that. Uh, because he had, he was building a, uh, he had built the Jedi Temple. He was training Jedi. His own nephew uh, was having issues and trauma, and he couldn't help his nephew, and he almost killed his nephew. So you go, okay, I could see how now what Robert's saying on top of all that. So, I, so in other words, let me let me just let me just make a point in this real quick about what I was saying before we get to Robert's statement. I was just saying there's a lot more that is easy for the brain to fill in when we see Obi-Wan knowing where Obi-Wan is going to, it's easier for the brain to get there than it is to go, man, the last time I thought of Luke, it would have been like triumphant Luke. We're not getting that. I understand that my brain can, can get there. Cause I like you actually kind of like what Luke is portrayed as. However, then you just get like, he's off and then he does. And then he throws the lightsaber. So, so what Robert's saying is, and then my question was, is that enough? And I don't think it's quite enough to get everybody onto the same page. Right. You can have you can have various opinions on how Luke gets there. And I don't think you're wrong because there's not enough given to us by the storytellers for us to say, well, there's evidence you're wrong because <laughs> it's not there's not enough evidence either way. So your brain has to do its own headcanon to get to where you think Luke should be. Now, what Robert's saying is, is that he can get there from a storytelling standpoint that Luke has removed himself. But what Robert's saying is it just doesn't feel like the personality of Luke to find to not find value in all of the things that were where Luke um, learned to value the force. He's now saying like, nah, screw it all. And I do think that there is something, there's something, there's, there's, um, there's two things going on there, I would say, and I'll get your response to this, Josh, because I've been talking yeah. for too long, but there's two things going on there. The first is that I think Ryan Johnson specifically wanted to be bold in his storytelling. He did not, you can see this throughout the entire through line of, of The Last Jedi. And this is why I think The Last Jedi is actually, in my opinion, a very good Star Wars film as a standalone film. I think it's 
really difficult for me to say that it's good as a part of a trilogy because of what it because of what it does. But that's not just his fault. That's the collective fault of Lucasfilm. Um, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to be incredibly bold. He's trying to give you surprises that Star Wars usually cannot give you. Why can why can Star Wars not give you surprises? Because Star Wars has a formula. Star Wars is built on myth. Star Wars is built on uh, the uh, adventurer's journey. By the way, shout out to uh, What the Force podcast for... Um, I didn't realize that, that uh, Joseph Campbell did not originally call it the hero's journey. He called it the adventurer's journey. And somebody along the way change the name of it so the adventurer's journey i think is a better name for it so i'm going to keep using that the adventurer's journey is what star wars is all about you don't get a lot of surprises with that you can go look up what that is and it will give you all the plot points and i think that what ryan johnson was saying was screw the plot points i'm just going to do these all these surprising things and that that i think is great as a standalone film and maybe not great as a part of a star wars trilogy but it is what it is so what Robert's then saying is, okay, well, what's really difficult for me is to get to a point where you're going to use those surprises without also giving me some context into why would Luke not only remove himself from the force, but then deride the force as if it was something not worthy of being learned. Right. And I do think he, that, that, that there's a good point to be made to be made there. I think that, sure. and I think it's okay that Ryan Johnson broke some of the what our expectations were, but these are the consequences of doing something like that. So, Josh, what do you think? No, you're totally right. I, I do think that there's a shock and surprise when he throws that lightsaber, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, people laughed in the theater, partly because it's a funny moment, but also partly because, like, you're laughing because you're like, oh, I'm so shocked. Like, what else am I supposed <laughs> right. to do here? Right. I, like, the way that Ryan Johnson wrote it does kind of Tarantino the film in the sense that you're starting ah. with a character that's already jaded, yeah. um, you know, and, and kind of broken, but you don't know how you got there. Right. And so it took the rest of the film to fill you in on some of those gaps. Again, like you said, is it enough to, you know, determine that that's where the character was headed? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. I, the other thing is, like you said, because of Lucasfilm's um, lack of foresight to put together the whole trilogy at once and then film it. Yeah. Uh, you know, put it all together story-wise, at least. I think that that becomes one of its main issues. Could, yes. Could we have seen um, Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams and whomever else all work together to be able to get to that right or would they have you know would they have ditched it we'll never know right um, because right. the sequel trilogy is uh a, it's a mess it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, just mess. a mess even if you even if you like it which i i have to admit like there's a lot of people that are like uh that really dislike the sequel trilogy i don't find myself in that in that position no, i no, i don't no. ever defend it from a i don't defend it from a storytelling standpoint because as you said it is very, 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 very messy. And I believe that... At, go ahead. When you look at trilogies, there's very few trilogies that are mind-blowingly amazing from, you know, the first second to the very end. <laughs> True, yeah. Um, even, you know, like, you and I, I know we're fans of um, Indiana Jones. And, yeah. And those films. Not every film, at least even in the, even in the first three films, right? Like, yeah. let's not even talk about Crystal Stull. 
because I know people have their feelings, but even in the yeah. first three films, there are moments and films in that trilogy that people don't love because yeah. they don't feel like they fit or are cohesive or whatever. Yeah. You know, a lot of people point to Temple of Doom. Some people love it, some people hate it, and yeah. that's fine. I, yeah. I feel like the sequel trilogy is, is similar in that opinion. Yeah, and I think the, the, the problem is, I mean, like Indiana Jones, let's, let's face it, like franchise storytelling is still a new vehicle it's it's not franchise storytelling um has been uh is not a new vehicle so much in the comics world right it's fairly mature in the comics world um but it has come in and out of favor in storytelling over the years you used to get serial stories in newspapers that's the version of franchise storytelling um radio broadcasts yes radio broadcasts have been serialized but the problem is, is that when you talk about serialized stories that are also become franchises and have different mediums that they're telling stories in, the big problem is, I mean, like what we call it, what we call a trilogy in the in the 80s is not what we call a trilogy in in the modern day. Indiana Jones does not fit together as a consistent narrative. The second film is a prequel. <laughs> like it's like so so even even so to your point, what, what the point I'm making is, is that we have a new expectation of films is that the films have to fit together perfectly based on what came before it. We have this thing, these things we call canon that we had to refer back to that were previously only referred to in the context of religious studies um, so that people, human beings like you and I could figure out, do we want to trust the material, the source material? And we would ask each other, is this canon? Meaning, have we studied it enough to say that these things could be good enough for us to place spiritual beliefs on, right? And... Yeah. Now we're saying that about Star Wars. Like it's a completely different shift about what we're asking from our storytellers and our storytelling vehicles from them to do. And I think that that just makes it a lot more difficult. So um, let's, but that's a good segue. So let me just say to, um, to Robert, thank you for the email, Robert. Fantastic thinking. I like the way that you're thinking about that. Thank you for not being toxic in your thinking and actually bringing forth. Robert did something in his critique that I want to talk to you about in this next segue, Josh, because he did it, I think a really good job of, um, of taking on a principle that I think that we should all try to take on if we're having a discussion about storytelling. But before we get there, I, I do want to um, talk a little bit about, because the setup for all of this is there's this level of toxicity in the fandom. And then we we start to break that down and we start to say like, well, what is toxic and what is critique? And toxicity and critique are actually two different things. They're not the same thing. So although they can be the same thing, so they can be synonymous. Sometimes they're not synonymous. It just kind of depends. So you did a video. You attended Star Wars Celebration, which I'm very jealous about. Um, for those of you who don't know, Josh and I kind of switched places and I now am in Colorado and Josh is in California and he got to go sure. to Celebration. Um, which I'm, which I'm stoked about. And so you did a video about the state of the fandom. It was almost like as if, as if you were doing, as if, uh, you know, the head of Lucasfilm was going to give a state of the union address, but you're doing that on behalf of Lucasfilm and saying, this is the state of the fandom. Um, I highly encourage everybody to go watch that video. Um, I will really try hard to remember to put a link to it down in the description below. Um, but tell me a little bit about what you learned as you created that video about the fandom now. Uh, yeah, so I've been under the assumption for a long time. I've always been a, a more positive than pessimistic kind of person. Mm -hmm. And 
I try and see all viewpoints. I'm the kind of person who, uh, you know, my friends will watch whatever news stories and, and, you know, come to their conclusions. I typically like to watch all sides and then kind of come to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, even with the, uh, because this is coming up, so this is topical at the time, like the January 6th uh, hearings that are going on, right? Right. My friends were... Uh, watching it, and Fox News was the only station that wasn't playing it uh, out of all the news networks. And so I decided to catch a few clips from Fox News just to know what the other side's talking points were. Mm -hmm. Not because I agree with them at all, but I wanted to know, like, okay, what's the message that's going to come from this side so that I can debate it? Right. Um, debate is something that just in general is is not survived into the 21st <laughs> century it feels like yeah uh, the internet age has killed debate but what i learned like going to star wars celebration i was really excited to go um it was a four-day event this year they've done like five-day events in the past mm-hmm. and there were some really great moments there were a lot of really cool people that i met but there were uh, if you if you stuck around long enough, if you listened in to conversations or you went to some of the panels that were run by fans mm. instead of run by, you know, the big Lucasfilm panels that like <laughs> right, right, right. Dave Filoni comes out and et cetera. Um, there were some moments where it was like, oh, some people's uh, opinions are seeping in uh. and those opinions are not welcoming to people who have separate opinions. Um, and. I found that to just be um, a bit menacing and uh, a bit off-putting. And I was like, I mean, oh, the name of the is... event is Star Wars Celebration. I mean, celebration right. is in the name. <laughs> right, we yeah. Should, yeah, we should be celebrating everything. Uh, and, I, you know, most people were. That's right. the thing. Most right. people were. But I found that, like, this fandom of kind of toxic takes Mm. Uh, and I hate using the word toxic because I feel like it's it's the same as like any other kind of uh, buzzword that goes <laughs> around. But like people who have really strong opinions that are not welcoming to other people's right, opinions, right. Uh, and then demean people because of it. Right. You see that a lot online. Right. And I started to see that seeping into mm. this big convention, this uh, seeping into the real world. And I know it's already part of the real world. Um, but we've seen it before. I reference um, the video game industry and uh, yes. quite a few years ago, how people were streaming on Twitch and YouTube and they were gaining a loyal following and especially of young males, mm-hmm. uh, a young male audience. That's typically who's watching Call of Duty players and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, when you've got somebody there for an hour watching you and you're talking to them, and you have to be captivating so a lot of these messages of uh hate were coming through anti-feminist ideas um white supremacist ideas and now we're seeing an entire generation of people um a young generation who have these ideas that are like really hateful and people are wondering where it came from and it's like well if you looked at this like subsection of fandom Mm. um they nobody noticed them and mm-hmm. now you're starting to see them and they're starting to run, um, do their own conventions, plan their mm-hmm. own events, 
do marches, things like that. So it started out as I want to watch somebody playing video games and it turned into I hate women. <laughs> right? <laughs> and now I feel kind of similarly with uh with Star Wars. There there is a lot especially misogyny. There's a lot of oh, I really love Luke Skywalker, laser swords, droids, pew pew into women have ruined everything I love. Mm. Uh, and that they're, they are not allowed to like Star Wars. And in my video, I use a bunch of examples of people who are legitimately saying exactly that. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, sexist comments, racist comments, things like that. And that kind of conversation uh, is, to me, unacceptable, uh, especially in a large crowd, like at a convention where, you know, I would say... 30%, maybe even more were women, mm. um, you know, and so that's, it's difficult to see that kind of thing. Yeah. So there's this, um, I, I wrote, I wrote an article about this, uh, on my medium blog, um, which I don't update very frequently, but every once in a while I'll write an article for it. And I was writing about it from the perspective of a storyteller because, um, because now all voices can be heard there is increased pressure on storytellers to adapt the stories that they're telling to whatever they're hearing from the voices of the audience, right? Now, why is that the case? Well, it's the case because for those of you who have not ever tried to publish anything before for other people, um, if you don't publish what people want to read or watch or listen to, then people don't buy it. And then you can't keep publishing it and, and have that be a sustainable activity for you. Or you could, but it'd be maybe a, be a hobby instead of a business. And so therefore you have to kind of gravitate towards what do people want? How can I meet the needs of the people who want it? And then you, you're playing this delicate balance of how do I feel about the world? How do I feel the world works versus what do people want for me to put into these stories? Um, you'll notice that tragedies are almost they almost do not appear in modern culture anymore in any sort of pop culture sense. Um, that is not true in, in greater history because Shakespeare was a frequent writer of tragedies and Shakespeare was very popular. Now, granted, Shakespeare did, the art of Shakespeare is that he's not only a phenomenal writer, but he, he does things that the general audience can understand. Shakespeare puts fart jokes into his scripts and he does that because he wants to get a rise out of the audience that he is uh, writing to and he wants them to present them with something that's far deeper and far more meaningful at the same time so he's kind of he's playing the game so to speak but it's very difficult because uh, my my basic takeaway was that we're not actually in our sharing of opinions we're not actually trying to come to solid conclusions and I think this is what you kind of indicate in your in your video, and and we'll talk about this in a second because I want to talk about what what forms of critique are better, but we're no longer trying to critique a thing in order to be helpful. So in other words, it used to be that there were film critics, and film critics did what most of us could not do, which is that they would watch all of the movies that would come out, and then they would tell us these movies are better than these movies, and this is what you should go spend your money seeing. Nowadays, what we do is we log on to our favorite uh, social media thing. We log on to our blog. We log on to our Facebook. We log on to our Twitter. We log on to whatever. And we say, what are some of the people whose opinions I tend to like? And what are they telling me I should do with my time 
whether or not that they have any history in film, whether or not they have any uh, understanding of what storytelling is, we're just looking for a shared opinion. Now, that shared opinion has quickly turned into something different because it used to be that it was like, well, I still would want to know what people who share my opinions or don't share my opinions think about something. You and I share a lot of opinions about what makes a good film, so I like your opinions. However, however, <laughs> what it's also doing now on top of that is it's actually tribe building and it is a tribe building activity. So what I mean by that is, is that we are now saying, well, are you, am I part of this tribe and what is this tribe then saying? So to your point about gamers, right? I'm watching the gamers and now there's a following of this gamer and this gamer is now saying things that I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm already a part of this tribe. So is this something I should believe now for you and me, if we joined that tribe and we were watching this gamer guy, we would probably say, I know, I know if I, in fact, I'll debate you on it. Do you want to do a podcast where we debate it? But for a lot of people, they're just they're they're not they're not trying to enter the sphere of conversation. They're just trying to better understand the world, and they and we do tend to understand our world through tribes, right? Like that's very common um, for people to understand their world through tribes. Now, I did not know how common this was, um, but as a kid growing up, I had this very strange phenomenon. I was homeschooled. I did not go to a public school. Did not go to a private school. Literally, me and my brothers in a room with my mom, and she was teaching us things, right? Um, and she would, she would show us tapes and stuff too, as if she didn't know enough about something. But the problem I always had was I played baseball with a bunch of these other kids. And I could tell you immediately, these kids would come into the field. I would be playing baseball with these kids. We'd be in practice together. We'd be hanging out together. And these kids had tribes. I didn't have a tribe because I didn't know what the tribes were. I didn't, I didn't go to the school. I didn't realize that they're, oh, that's a cool kid. And that's a nerd. And that's a cool kid. And that's a nerd. Oh, and that's a jock. And that's kind of a smart kid. I did not know these things. And so my early experience was like, why don't, why don't you get along with this other person? It's like, we just don't get along. Well, why not? I don't know. We just don't, we just don't hang out. But I, I but I, yeah, but yet I am hanging out with you and I'm going to go hang out with them <laughs> later on in this practice. And it's not weird to me. So the, the point I'm bringing up here is that tribalism has tended to become, it's trended, tended to always be a thing. But it seems to be becoming more and more of a thing that we are looking for people with the same opinion that we have so that we can join a tribe and then feel comfortable in that tribe. And so here's 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 my question. And anybody listening, you can send me an email. Hi at ReclamationSociety.com. Let me or sorry, I said, said that totally incorrectly. Hi at ReclamationSociety.org. Don't send it to .com or I won't get it. Hi at ReclamationSociety.org. Um what is what do we actually need from critique? As we're talking about film critique, storytelling critique, TV critique, what is it that separates a film critic from a film enthusiast, from a general audience fan, from a person on Twitter who likes to tweet things about something that they watch? What is it that what is it that we should be looking for? as we call someone a film critic or not a film critic. What do you think about that, Josh? Because I, I would say that um, I have a lot of film critic friends. I would include you as one of those people, right? You literally have been paid by other organizations to watch something and then do a write-up about it. I know other film critics, Tim Posada, who's been on the show, Helen O'Hara with Empire, Chris Hewitt with Empire, um, I haven't had Chris Hainer on the show, but Chris Hainer is a friend of mine who's a film critic as well. All of these people I know are film critics. I want to know why. Why? What makes them a film critic and what makes somebody else an enthusiast or just a general fan tweeting into the, to the void? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So to be 
a critic, criticism, film criticism is journalism, Hmm. right? Like you're, you're essentially a journalist. Your goal is one of two things in in the modern era. It's either Mm -hmm. to get to some, get somebody to go watch a film or a movie or TV series. Mm -hmm. Um, If we're just talking about straight film and TV stuff, we can also talk about comics and stuff like that, but um, to get somebody to go watch it, right. To sell them on it, which is what, all these companies love. They would love critics who want to praise something on the opposite end, you know, be real and say, Hey, uh, this wasn't good, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, or you're somebody who more often like what we're seeing now is not, Hey, go watch this thing. It's more kind of like what you do, what I do, what a lot of people do, which is, Hey, we both saw this thing. Mm -hmm let me tell you why it works Mm. and also here are some things that you might not know etc um where we go wrong here is that and this comes from all kinds of sides so this isn't just like a oh these people that uh are misogynists are this way but there's also people on the complete other positive side of it that miss out on this right um when you're critiquing film or television, let's just stick with that. You are not only critiquing story, mm. but you're also critiquing camera work, film editing, special effects, and how all those things come together. Mm. Um, if it's a film like in a Star Wars trilogy, right? Like let's say we're just talking about The Last Jedi. Um, you have to look at The Last Jedi as a movie by itself. It is not Mm. as a critical analysis. It is not a star Wars movie. Mm. It is not attached to anything else. Is this movie good? If you knew nothing else about star Wars Mm. and then you say, okay, is this movie good as a sequel in a series? Mm. And those two things have to both come together. Like you can't just have one without the other. Um, a lot of people skip over the thing, like you were saying even earlier, as a singular movie, mm-hmm. it is great. Mm-hmm. If you did not know who Luke Skywalker was, you have no questions. <laughs> right. Um, as a sequel to a previous film, is it does it hold up? Well, you know, that's debatable, and it could people could say no, and that's definitely a valid criticism. Um where people get where people decide to go is they focus only on story mm. and their focus tends to be especially in this big franchise world um is this what i thought these characters were going to do right and if it was great this is why <laughs> i think that's great if it wasn't what i thought these characters should do it's bad and this is why i think it's bad mm. And mm-hmm. there is definitely a place for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but not like that just seems to be the dominant conversation mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. is, is this where I thought this character was going to go? Um, is this where I thought Luke Skywalker was going to go? Is this where I thought uh, the Harry Potter series was going to go? Whatever the case might be. Right. Yeah. And um that's why sometimes it's really refreshing to see a film 
that is not connected to a large franchise. <laughs> right. Because it's like, okay, I just want to be wowed by something and I don't want to like overthink where yes. it's coming from or whatnot. And um, there's not a whole community of people that are going to attack this thing because it doesn't match what they thought was going to happen. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, man, I see a lot of that. And, yeah. Uh, and it's frustrating. And also to kind of what you were saying before, um, you know, when you write a headline on Medium, your yeah. goal uh, is to catch eyes. Right. And the way to do that is to play to people's emotions. Um, yes. A lot, a lot of people will tell you that's how you, if you're doing social media, if you're doing YouTube, if you're doing TikToks, if you're doing writing, whatever the case might be. Nowadays, if you play to people's emotions, that's what's going to get clicks. That's why you yeah. see uh, <laughs> yeah. on your uncle's Facebook some wild article that he's just <laughs> decided to repost. You know, like that is, uh, that's people playing to emotions. So instead of saying, uh, having a headline that says, Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi is not what we thought it was going to be, but it is a nuanced take. Right. Instead, you go, Luke Skywalker was ruined by Star Wars. <laughs> Kathleen yeah, yeah. Kennedy ruined Luke Skywalker. Then you're right. like, then people are like, oh my God, I have to click on this. Right. And so now you're seeing this polarization because of it. So there is, I think there is a fault to the uh, algorithms mm. of the internet in mm. that way. But then at the same time, we allow ourselves as humans, even knowing that, yeah to still be convinced and click on those things and uh, and either be outraged by one <laughs> side or right. outraged by the other side so yeah 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 yeah, yeah. totally now i have i will say i'm not an expert in what i'm about to say what i'm about to say is a hypothesis for what got us here and why i think this is happening so much in the modern in the modern day and i'd like to get your reaction to it because um because i, I think there's an argument to be made that there is the word toxic, if we were to go look up the definition of the word, means that it is um, it is gross and egregious and it is causing harm to other people. And several people have started talking about the word toxicity as it relates to positive review toxicity, right? And I think that that's a it's it's not as a, it's it's not as good of a synonym to use um, for that kind of commentary. But I do believe that there is an overproduction of positive comments as well. Um, I've even noticed that the Star Wars Twitter account has taken on a very different personality um, as Star Wars has decided we're going to fight back against this toxicity and negativity in our... I actually think that's a bad move. I think it's actually just feeding... It's feeding things that exist as opposed to uh, pulling things away and not allowing those things to to become... Uh, to don't By doing that, I think you just basically say yeah, we're choosing a tribe and it's this one and we're choosing not that tribe. And I just don't think we should do that. But that aside, here's, what I think, here's how I think we got here. I have been uh, a part of uh, tech startups that are for-profit, that are just it's about making money. I've been a part of academic environments, which are attempting to um, produce better educated um, people, right? Uh, people that with hopefully a higher propensity for doing something. Um, and those two environments used to work, used to work because the things have changed in very different ways, right? Let me just explain what I mean by that. 
in academia, the historic uh, interplay between academia and the marketplace was that academia was based on the review of your peers, people who had studied something already, who then said, have you studied it well? And if so, and if your thinking and your activity has showcased that there are best practices that you have put in place, then we will award you with success. You have to, you get to have a doctorate, you get to have a, a master's degree, you get to have whatever. And that's the, the, the academic uh, stratification, meaning that it is, it is merit-based, but the decision about whether or not the merit is worthwhile is not based on general marketplace factors, but rather based on a set of peer peers who you would call experts in their field. Um, that is very different from my experience in uh, the startup world. In the startup world, the end goal is to get the target audience to purchase something. <laughs> it is to get them. So you don't need to be the best in, you, you don't need to be the best to make a lot of money. In fact, most times the best don't make the most money. <laughs> Other people make the most money. And so you have to be good enough, but you have to be good enough in the way people want you to be good enough. Now, where do these things come in conflict with one another? Well, in academia, if you and I are choosing who's good, we tend to look for people who are like us, right? And so we tend to look at, or, or if they're not like us, then they at least have a shared agreement about what the uh, the standards are that we should be using. And so we tend to look for things that probably don't rock the boat so much, or they tend to augment current thinking as opposed to like just just wiping the slate clean and starting from scratch. Every once in a while, academia has a breakthrough where that happens, but that is less likely to happen in academia because the the rigor that goes into earning the respect of your peers is such that the value of being a peer exists there. That is not true at all in the startup community. <laughs> in the startup community, you don't get chosen by your peers. You get chosen because you got someone to buy something. And then that's what it is. You got someone to use a tool. You got someone to use... Um, the academia may not even select the same people to win that the, that the general audience picks to win by buying their products and services, right? It's, it's a very different way of achieving something that you would call success, right? One is the general public thinks it's awesome. One is the peers think you're awesome. Why am I even talking about this at all? Because I think it is observationally interesting to apply this thinking to the structures that exist that make us watch TV, invest in stories, go back to the table. It used to be that, and by the way, academia has suffered greatly by not paying attention to the general audience. And tech is suffering greatly in the harm it's doing to society by not paying attention to the best practices. So both, both, things, <laughs> both things are suffering greatly in the world and need some sort of adjustment to get us back into the good graces of having a better society. But that aside... I think that what we've done is we've so so startups can be compared and I don't want to I don't want to make this comparison because, again, I'm not an expert in politics or political structures, but I'm just going to use the comparison just to have uh, terms to use to discuss this. Startups function almost like a pure democracy, whatever most people vote for is whatever wins. Academia focuses more like a republic or even in extreme cases, what you might call an 
oligarchical structure, which is to say that the oligarchy or the republic, the people that were voted into those places by their peers usually, which is why it's a little different and more like an oligarchy, are the ones who decide that something is good. And my opinion is what we have seen over the last 20 years is the degradation of what was the oligarchy in terms of this is how films get made. This is who talks about films. This is who should be involved in filmmaking and who shouldn't be involved in filmmaking. And then there's like basically, you know, half a dozen to a dozen critics who get the chance to say whether or not that that's true or false. And we've seen that system devolve into well, now everybody has a voice. Now I need to go make films for these people. And so that industry has basically been shifted drastically. Um, and I think that we need an adjustment, just like we need in academia, just like we need, again, I'm not an expert in these things, but just what I'm seeing in, from what I'm seeing in tech, we need a melding of the two sources. And so here's my conclusion. Sorry for sorry for this long-winded argument, but I feel like if I don't express it all, then it's hard to get it's hard to get to the conclusion I have. I feel like what we need to identify is the difference between a film critic and a general audience, just like you see on Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic. Like you see the difference in the ratings between the two, because we I think that the general audience is relying upon too many other people to build tribes as opposed to understand whether or not the film was any good. And let me tell you what I think, Josh, we should say a film critic is versus a general audience uh, person. One, it's someone who studies the art. Because you can be a Star Wars fan, study Star Wars, but that doesn't mean you're also a fantastic filmmaker. It doesn't mean you're a good director or a cinematographer or an actor or a writer. Um, so you, there's the Star Wars fan. Their opinion is valid from being a, the opinion of a Star Wars fan. But a film critic, a TV critic, a, a critic that we look at to say, what is the value in this piece? What is the, what is, and, and should I engage in it or not from the value that it produces to society at large, to the bigger community, not just to the Star Wars community? And that person has to, has to be involved in an understanding of the creation of the material so that they, they are, they can be seen as not just another person with another idea who's building a following, but a person who has studied the material to have a conclusion that is worth us paying attention to. And, and the I think that you said this earlier on, and I think this is right on, 100%. A critic needs to answer why questions, whereas a general audience person does not. So a general audience person can say, I like, I dislike, and I'm done with it. A film critic needs to say, this is great, and here's why. This scene was surprising. This scene produced this emotion. This actor did these techniques. This director did this, and I've never seen it before. And they did this, and it was surprising to me. Or they did this, and it didn't really work because of this and this and this. So I'll stop there. That was a long explanation of what I think has been happening <laughs> What do you think? Is it am I on the right track here? Are we on the in the and are we talking about film critics in a way that is is more valuable or am I totally off base? No, I here's the thing. You are correct. Right? And, <laughs> Thank you. Um I think that being a critic should have some prestige that goes with it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are uh you've studied this, you're knowledgeable about it, you've put the time in, and that's not like I, I think you're right in the sense like okay, you could go to school for film or maybe you've worked on a film before. Right. 
or whatever the case might be. Um, there are other people who come out that are, you know, like these prodigies that just are like, oh, they're really good at this for some reason. Yeah. Whatever the case might be. But here's the problem with mm. all of that. Mm. Uh, how do I, as a uh, regular citizen of the world, determine <laughs> yeah. when I go online and I see, I click onto YouTube and I type in uh, Jurassic World Dominion right yeah. yeah jurassic world dominion review mm-hmm. review would give me the idea that it, i'm going to get a critical review right but the amount of search results that i'm going to get <laughs> for jurassic world dominion review is going to be so many yes how do i as a regular citizen without having clicked on anything determine who's going to give me a critical point of view and who's going to give me their uh general audience analysis the thing is i'm still again going back to this idea that we respond to strong emotions Mm -hmm. probably the top result of that search is going to be a person who's going to say i really love jurassic world dominion or (laughs) this was legitimately the worst film ever made by humanity (laughs) how dare you Right. Uh, that's going to that's just what's going to pop up because it's going to get the most views because it's appealing to strong emotions right and so that becomes a difficult thing uh, it's like um it's like spotify right spotify mm. is the same thing now that we've allowed the structures of who gets in mm. to go away right we've got like you had to if you were a musician you had to be on a record label that record label got you onto the radio yeah from the radio then you started playing bigger crowds and bigger crowds and you became a big giant band uh and a rock star and um now you don't need a record label you don't need Mm -hmm. any of that you can make this music and upload it directly to spotify and then spotify starts paying you and if you can market yourself really well if you're the little nas x yeah of the world and you can market yourself really well doesn't matter what you sound like right um you can you know you can be a star and so that's the same thing with criticism for for film and television if you can market yourself well enough if you can get to people's strong emotions you can be a quote-unquote critic yeah because you're the one that's getting paid attention to the most yep and that has kind of become what has happened with everything with not just with star wars but with everything where um i'm constantly seeing i you and i are both um frequent disneyland people at least when we lived here Uh, and we both like theme parks and there's even in the theme park world um, a huge push right now towards the negativity and anytime i see a video that's strongly uh emotional on the negative side it has more views and more streams and more anything uh, and that also tends to be just in general too. Negativity is a stronger emotion than yeah. positivity. Yep. Uh, and people like to be appealed to, to know that, oh, they thought this sucked like yeah. I did too. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of negativity and that negativity then turns into shift. It shifts the blame onto other things, right? So with Star Wars, 
the blame starts to be shifted onto, well, I don't like the sequels. The star of that film is Daisy Ridley. (laughs) I hate, I hate Daisy Ridley. Right. You know, or, uh, they made this mistake with Luke Skywalker. Ryan Johnson wrote him wrong. I hate Ryan Johnson. Right. And it just, it devolves into that. Uh, And that becomes the problem. So like, we're in a situation right now where how do we determine who's a critic and who's not? Yeah. And like you were saying too. So when star Wars came out and made a statement, right. That they were anti-racist, that they, they don't, they don't want racists around. Yeah. What they did in, in an analogy is they walked up to a bully and they punched the bully right in the face. <laughs> right, now, right, right. Anytime I've ever dealt, I mean, going back to my days of elementary school, yeah, uh, punching a bully never made the bully not be a bully. You know <laughs> right, what I right, mean? Right. Like he, he yeah. was like, you know what? I've been an asshole this whole time. <laughs> you were right. I didn't see uh, it until I got your fist in my face, and then I see it. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I think you know the way in the in my video, kind of, I come to the conclusion that like there are less bullies than we think yes there's we've just given them all the platforms yes and so the best thing is like in a big convention like that where 95 or more percent of the audience there is super cool um we should you know all band together and be like hey like we don't appreciate this version of your critique, um, I'm not going to, I'm no longer going to give you the attention that you deserve, that that you're saying that you deserve. And that's going to take a lot of training. That's going to take a lot of people uh, being consciously aware of when they click on, you know, they type in Jurassic World Dominion on YouTube. And that first thing says, I really hate Jurassic World Dominion. Here's why. Yeah it's going to take a lot of people consciously going, I don't want to hear this. Yes. I'm not going to click yes. on it. Yes. Um, and I don't know if that's completely possible right now, maybe in the future, but not right now. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point. Cause like, even when I was talking, if you heard me say that academia was better than the startup world or vice versa, I don't believe that those things are accurate. Um, I believe that certain things are needed at certain times, right? Like sometimes we need the marketplace to win in the tech startup world where it's like the people demand it. And then sometimes we need the the marketplace to win where it says like the best thinkers say, or the people we believe to be the best thinkers because they've studied something a lot. They say we should probably do this, right? And the problem is, is that we constantly see one of those two things go out of out of whack, right? We saw it with the pandemic where it was like the the people that we expected to know the most about something started silencing people who also knew a lot about something, but they didn't like their take. And so they said, you need to be silenced. But then we saw the general public decide, well, we're either going to believe in masks or we're not. And that's all there is to it. And it's, so we we have this, um, We I think what we need, what I would encourage people to do is understand Think through why you're following a person. I know this is difficult because you're being asked to think about a lot of things constantly all the time, but think through why you're following a person and whether or not that critique is valid. So 
you shouldn't follow you shouldn't follow me to talk about whether or not somebody's a good cine, cinematographer. I might give you my opinion on whether or not I like the cinematography, but I don't know anything about cinematography, so to, so to speak. I mean, I've studied it as much as uh, a, a storyteller who likes film has studied it. What I'm trying to do is when I critique something, and this is this is kind of uh, we'll end we'll end on this point, and I'll let you go because I still got to talk Kenobi, but. Um, when I critique something, what I am trying to do is from a storyteller's standpoint, I'm a writer. I have directed things as well. I am trying to understand what about something moved me? What about something made me think differently? What about something engaged me in a story? And then ultimately, what was the meaning of that piece for society? And was that true or not true? Did it, did, was it, was it something that we should be a story we should be telling each other? Or was it a story that if we told each other, if we told each other that story enough, we would actually be deceiving one another and believing things we shouldn't believe. That is my goal as a storyteller. It is my goal as a person who converses with other people. Obviously that makes it easy for me to have conversations with film critics because film critics are doing similar things um, they're deconstructing movies in similar ways, but I have a different purpose. I would never want to be known as a film critic. If somebody came to me and said, you're such a great film critic, I'd be like, I don't want to be known as a film critic. I guess not what I'm trying to achieve. Um, I'm trying to understand stories at the maximum level that a human being could possibly understand them so that I can go write my own and have them be meaningful to a group of people. Um, and so I can't stand it when I start to hear people who are not only not film critics, but definitely general audience kinds of people who start to say things like the acting is bad, the writing is bad. That to me is a very, very, very ignorant statement coming out of nine and a half out of 10 people's mouths. <laughs> and the reason for that is because, let's just say I heard a critique of Kenobi that the writing was bad. The writing's bad. Okay. First of all, the process for creating Kenobi is that there is a group of writers that writes something. And the, the bigger the film studio, the more likely this is to be true. They then hand it over to the producers who then say, thank you for writing this. We like it a lot. Who then hand it to a director and say, you know, and sometimes the director is involved a little bit more up front. Like, for example, Dave Filoni and John Favreau were given more control, so they wrote things. Um, I do not know whether that's, that's true with Deborah Chow, but I kind of doubt it based on the way that this has played out. I, I think she's more of a coming in to technically tell the story as opposed to tell the story from the ground up. She My, has writing credits, just not on this show. She has writing credits in in previous um in, in previous, previous things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but not on not on Kenobi. Yeah. Not on Kenobi. Yeah, that ma and that makes tons of sense to me. That makes tons of sense. So that's that's actually helpful in this discussion because it does it's different than what we're seeing from uh, Favreau and Filoni. Um, and what that means is that she is then taking on something that somebody else put together, but she has the right to change it. If something's not working correctly, if it doesn't fit into the filming schedule, if they don't have the budget to do the way that it was written, she is the director, which means she will change it. You also have a cinematographer who comes in. You also have actors who come in. You also have second units that come in that aren't even being managed by, I mean, managed by De Deborah Chow, yes, but from a leadership standpoint, not from an actively doing it standpoint. So you have a giant crew of people doing a lot of different things. And then someone sees a finished episode and goes, the writing's horrible. And you go, 
there's any one thing that could have been changed. So for you to say that the writing is bad is you basically being ignorant of the process about how things are made. So thanks for your comment, but you're an idiot, right? Like, so I, I think that, um, and, and that's true of whether it's acting, like, like you don't know what the actor was asked to do in that moment. You can't say that the actor was, that the actor wasn't asked to do it differently. I can guarantee you that George Lucas asked, uh, and, and 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 there's some spoilers that I'm going to get. I'll talk. I'll make the connection when we start when I start talking about Episode Five. But Josh hasn't seen that yet, so I'm not going to spoil it for him. Do I can guarantee you that George Lucas, when he's directing Ewan McGregor, told him different things than Deborah Chow told him. Right? I can guarantee you that right now, um, and I think it's obvious when you watch it. So my point is, is that if you hear anybody who has a YouTube channel that has not acted before, has not written something before, has not tried to do their own movie before. Maybe don't pay attention to when they start to criticize a specific part of a thing. Um, yes, their opinion is valid. Whether or not they like it or not is okay for them to express. But as soon as they start saying like, this person's a terrible actor, this person's a terrible writer, this person doesn't know how to direct, that is completely ludicrous um unless unless there's one caveat i'm gonna make here they are a film critic who has lots and lots of time being a film critic or they are a storyteller they're a former director they're a former actor and they say something like these are some takes that i would have done it differently and here's why because that at least gives you some insight into the fact that they know what they're talking about. Because <laughs> otherwise, these people have no clue. Um, so anyways, I don't mean to rant too much. But that's when the toxicity of the fan base is, gets, I think, gets the worst. Because that's when you start to see them bullying actors. You start to see them bullying writers. You start to see them picking, um, again, picking sides that they know nothing about. And they don't know what went into that. They don't know how that was done. It happened to... Uh, it happened to Hayden Christensen. It happened to Jake Lloyd. It happened to uh, uh, Kelly Marie Tran. It now happened to um, uh, Moses Ingram. Come on. These people are not making the decisions you think that they're making. Like, this is so ludicrous for you to even say that they are because it just shows that you're a completely ignorant person. So now that I've said that, <laughs> maybe you can respond to it. No, that's true. You, like, you know, you're going after an actor because you don't like the portrayal. If you look at Jake Lloyd, right? Like he was, I don't know how old he was, 10, 12. Same with yeah. like uh, Vivian Blair, who's playing young Leia on, yeah. on Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Little kid. Um, they're probably really excited to just be in a Star Wars film yeah. or show or whatever, right? Like they have no jurisdiction over the dialogue no, because it's already written for them. Correct. They have no jurisdiction on how they wanted it to be acted out. Like, a bunch of films and television get several takes of every scene. Correct. It's up to the editor and the director then to choose what version of that scene works best. That's correct. So when you go, the acting is really stiff. Okay, well, that one shot of that actor is really stiff. There are maybe 10 different shots. Maybe that was the best one. Maybe it's yeah. not. Yeah. Maybe it was just the editor that chose the worst one. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like it, it is a 
like you were saying, it's a conglomerate of people all working on this thing. Correct. So to go to one actor and go, you ruined it. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> that's um, right. They did a job. And I think that that's, uh, that's difficult for people to understand, that it is a job that people do. Yeah. And when you look at a, when you look at a film and, and it says, at the end credits, it says, like, directed by Deborah Chow. Yeah. You you have to realize her job as director is to not write the whole thing. Right. Again, there have been people that have written, directed, produced. Yes. They're all everything. But it is not their job to shoot all the cameras. It's right. not their job to choose every single point of of edits. Yeah. Um, or whatever the special effects are or the Foley work or whatever. like, it's so weird that we go, you know, like, yeah, you're saying like, Oh, the writing's bad. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But like, why? Right. You can't just say, I don't, I don't like, uh, Daisy Ridley because she's a Mary Sue. Okay. Well, Ray is a Mary Sue, but like Luke is pretty similar. Yeah, yeah. So, like, why is she and Mary Sue, and why would you say that Luke isn't? And, and like, right. people sometimes get tripped at that point because they, they don't think that far through in their critique. Correct. They just see something, and they have an opinion, and that opinion is I like or don't like something. Um, yeah, it's really hard. It's hard to see the end of the road on that kind of thing. But I think that taking these voices that are have a strong opinion – and then use that strong opinion to attack someone. Yes. Um, I think that trying to ig ignore it would be foolish. Yes. But at the same time, we also need to not give those people the spotlight as often. Um, totally. Totally agree. And I'll give you an example because you brought an example of something specific you brought up. So we were working on Death of a Bounty Hunter, full cast audiobook. And um, and just to show you how chaotic production is, the first time we ever did our production, it was people sitting around the same table, um, using different microphones, but sitting around the same table and me directing them. And then what we realized was that we weren't getting as good of audio quality as we would have liked. So then we started recording people because we don't have the resources to have like a giant booth where they all have their own very specific high quality mics. We Because we don't have enough of them. We, we said, you know, let's record one person at a time. And so we started recording one person at a time. Well, we got to, we had already listened to one of our actors perform a scene, did a fantastic job. Now we're working with uh, my really, uh, really good friend of mine, Megan Salinas, who talked to me about um, episode one on this very series about Kenobi. And as we're, as we're having Megan do the takes, one of the things that Nathan and I decided as director and basically um, assistant director was that we would have her start to remove emotion from her takes, right? So the character you're playing, Megan, is up against a character who's experiencing a lot of emotion. And for in order for you, in our opinion, in order for you to showcase that you have power in this scenario, by the way, this is a female character interacting with a male character too. So this is an assumption that the male character is super aggressive. So how would a female show aggression back? How would a female combat that aggression? And we said, you know what? She's so powerful that he, no matter what kind of emotion that he shows her, she's not going to be reactionary to it. And so we had Megan keep removing the emotion from that performance because that showcased, I'm not scared of you. This is just what it is. 
You can rant about it as much as you want to. I'm not dealing with you this way. Now, that was our take on that. Meaning that Megan was like, I kind of like the other takes. And we said, well, we kind of like these takes. So um, we'll do both. And then we'll see which one fits better in the, in the final product, right? That is a very clear definition about how it actually goes down, right? Megan has a take that she brings to the table. We say, Megan, we love you. We love your performance. This is great. It's not worse than another performance you did, but we don't think it works as well in this particular scene because of what we know, because you're not interacting with a person across the table anymore. You're interacting with just us in a room who we have heard the other person's performance. So, um, so again, this is going back to a give and take between the director. I'm in this case, the writer as well. The, and Nathan's a co-writer, the director, the assistant director, the co-writer and the, and the co-writers talking to an actress about how to perform a thing. If anyone were to come by and be like, Megan's performance is horrible, I'd be like, you're an idiot. I'm I'm the one that told her what to do. You got to blame me if you're going to blame anybody. By the way, I wrote the dialogue. So if you didn't like that either, guess whose fault that is? Like, so it's just, it's just, uh, it's just ridiculous to me. And I think that that's a really, it, I can give you the specific example from my life that it, that is what you just said, right? Like, this is what it is. Um so I will say that I think your video on this was fantastic. Uh, I will, um, again, I'll, I'll try and link to it. Maybe if I, if I don't, you can remind me. If you haven't seen Josh's video about it, please go watch it on his channel, uh, Modern Mouse on YouTube. Um, and what else are you up to, Josh? Tell the people where they can find you and what they should be watching from you. Uh, well, what I'm working on is a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> it feels like I've actually got, a video that I would like to get out hopefully soon. Mm. Um, I'm doing a whole 10 years later series. So like, I mean, this episode is coming out in 2022. So I'm kind of looking back on things that came out in 2012. Nice. Um, and one of the things that we both love came out in 2012, which is Gravity, Gravity Falls. Falls. <laughs> and uh, so I'm excited to kind of dive into the history of Gravity Falls and 10 years later, how it may have changed um, animation and television. Awesome. And so that'll be a video coming from me sometime soon. Uh, I've got like a couple other historical, um, more history-based videos, less analysis coming. Okay. Um, one about a woman that, one of the first female animators from Disney. Ah. She didn't just work in the ink and paint department. She actually graduated to being a part of the animation team. Uh, I was only there for two years or so before leaving. Um, but her story is, is both triumphant and tragic. Um, so I want to tell her story. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. Uh, I've got a new podcast that hopefully will be out by the end of the month for Modern Mouse as well. So um, you can look me up on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Perfect. Uh, and then I also talk, if you're interested in theme park conversations, uh, I talk with my friends over at Theme Park Pulse um, on their podcast quite often. And we talk about uh, what's going on in the world of theme parks. That's awesome. Go follow Josh. Check it out at Modern Mouse Josh on Twitter. Um, and yeah. Great video. So thank you for doing that. Thanks for joining me. And I'm going to jump into Kenobi episode five and I don't want to spoil Josh. So Josh is going to take off and I'm going to continue that conversation. Thanks for listening to me rant about 
um, about <laughs> supposed film critics and help and helping join in with that that figuring out what we should be looking for and why we should be looking for. I appreciate you, Josh. No problem. Thank you, sir. All right, and take it easy, man. Kenobi. Take it easy. <laughs> See ya. All right, so let's get into Obi Wan Kenobi now because uh, that was that was fun to talk to Josh about that. But I also want to get into um, a little bit more about Episode Five of Obi Wan Kenobi. Again, that was a long conversation, so spoiler warning: if you haven't seen Obi Wan Kenobi Episode Five, this is going to contain spoilers for that. And I'm going to start right in with the spoilers because I'm going to give a recap of the show really quick here. It starts out with Reva and Vader are able to track these early rebellion fighters back to Jabim. So I'm talking about Obi Wan Kenobi. I'm talking about Tala. I'm talking about um, his name. Ro- Rakeem, I think his name is. Um, they are all headed back to Jabim as part of the path where they put Force-sensitive people or people who disagree with the Empire. They ship them off to different areas. That's all happening through Jabim and Vader and Reva figure that out. As this plays out in real time, we're also getting flashbacks of a very cool scene, a very, very cool scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi, younger Obi-Wan Kenobi, prequel era Obi-Wan Kenobi, and prequel era Anakin are fighting and we get to see finally Hayden Christensen um, without the Vader stuff on most of the time. He's not in the Vader stuff. I don't think anyway. So that was really, really, really cool to see. It really felt to me like a, uh, a very redemptive moment for Hayden Christensen as an actor to be experiencing star Wars in a different context. And I really enjoyed the seeing those flashbacks. I'll get into why, in a minute but that that fight scene is essentially a metaphor for the strengths and the weaknesses of both characters both obi-wan kenobi and um anakin skywalker and that's going to play itself out by being showcased in the actual action in modern in the modern the present day of this series as they go throughout the rest of the or the rest of the moments here so as this plays out basically what occurs is the um and you guys saw it so you would know vader and reva create a sort of siege they go into the hideout of the early rebellion and they're not calling themselves rebellion yet but they basically are the rebellion and there's a bunch of moments that are included in this um in this uh siege it's not there's not like a lot going on here it's that that there's where the rebels are we got to take it over but what occurs in all of the moments here is a lot. We have Obi-Wan realizing that uh, Reva is a youngling or was a youngling and watched Vader kill, or Anakin at that point in time, kill all the other younglings. So that's a huge moment. Um, Reva's motivation becomes exceedingly clear uh, it's for the first time, and that is she, she really just wants revenge on Vader which does present her still as a dark side person, but also presents her in a very different light because she's not actually trying to become Grand Inquisitor so much as she's just trying to kill Vader and get revenge on Vader, which I thought was a really interesting thing for them to bring into light. Obi-Wan is consistently gaining a lot of his abilities back. We see him, again, being better with his lightsaber, being more skilled with with the Force and how he uses the Force. Tala sacrifices herself to buy time by blowing herself up with a thermal detonator. Vader force grabs the ship. He's the wrong ship. The other ship takes off. I am kind of curious to know who was in the first ship and flying the first ship. If it was a droid or something, that would be interesting. There's a Reva and Vader fight. Obviously, uh, that does not end well for, for Reva. And then Reva also finds the message from Bail Organa and knows that Obi-Wan is going back to Tatooine at some point in time. And that, of course, is 
big problem number one because that's where Luke is, and we all know how important Luke is here. So on a scale of 1 to 10, this was my favorite episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi, the series. Um, even I even liked it probably a little bit better than the first episode, although those would be the top two for me. I think most people say that the first episode is their favorite episode. This, this episode just had a lot of, it had a lot of fan service, but it also had a lot of heart. So uh, I love moments where there are consequences for people's actions. The fact that Tala uses the thermal detonator um, is a, an emotional moment. It's a great moment. It is a moment that I will enjoy watching over and over again. Uh, the confrontation between Riva and Vader is really fun because I don't think we've ever seen Vader fight in that way without a lightsaber before. And then he's able to use a lightsaber at other moments. Really enjoyed the moment where um, we got to see Obi-Wan and Anakin fighting. But even more so than that, I loved it as a metaphor for their relationship and about how Obi-Wan would manipulate him in the present moment in this time. And the fact that Anakin has not adjusted to some of his more irrational behaviors is just part of his desire uh, with the dark side to make his way happen as opposed to submit to the greater will of the force. So I think that a lot of that stuff was done really well. It was one of the first episodes where I found myself getting, you know, goosebumps because there were such great moments, not just to see the fan service moments, but also to see some of the cool things that happened as well. I'm always a little nervous when, you know, Vader has the power to grab a ship. And then you kind of just wonder like, well, why didn't he grab the millennium Falcon when it was leaving the death star? Um, after he killed uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi in A New Hope. Why wouldn't he just grab the, the Millennium Falcon and pull it back in? Those are things that, you know, every time you add power to a character, it's awesome. But at the same time, it also calls into question, like, well, why didn't the characters use some of those powers um, earlier on or, 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 or whenever? So um, I will say, was there anything that didn't work? Um I do think there's one thing that I'm not going to pass judgment on until episode six, until the finale is over. Uh, by the way, uh, Michael Young from Nerd Soul had the idea that we should invite all the people that I've had on to talk about this series to talk about episode six next week. So stay tuned for that because I'm going to try to see if I can get as many of them as possible to join me to kind of have a big breakdown episode. It'll be really fun. Come hang out with us on that. The thing that didn't work for me and the thing that I'm I'm nervous about there are rumors that we're going to get a Riva spinoff series. Um, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I, if I were involved in Lucasfilm, I would say, you know what? I don't know that that's a path that we should go down. Um, again, it's another character who's in the same Skywalker era. I think I'd rather, honestly, I would have rather seen Moses Ingram in a completely different role. In a, I think actually Moses Ingram would be fantastic as a Jedi. Um, I think she would do amazing as a Jedi. We finally got to see an emotion from her that wasn't pure anger in this episode. And she delivered on that really, really well. I think that she can capture a lot of those moments that are more conflicted from a Jedi perspective than from a Sith perspective, um, which is a Sith is always almost more one note by definition anyways. I think Reva is or Moses is capable of doing things that are far more um, sophisticated than that. And I would like to see her in a different context, but um, I don't think we need that that series. That series doesn't make sense to me. But the conflict I'm having, the internal conflict I'm having, it's really the only thing about this episode that I was, besides the Vader pulling the thing, which creates other issues, but again, it's cool. Um, the only thing I'll see, would say is from a, um, 
from a storytelling standpoint is that if they try to shove in a turn to the light side, which I do not think that they will do. This episode was written by um, Andrew. I believe his name's Andrew Stanton. I believe he's one of the Pixar writers. And so he has a depth of storytelling knowledge that's really solid. So in his hands, I think that this is going to be a really good finale. And this episode was, I thought, great too. And it contained emotional moments that we maybe didn't get some of the other... Well, we did get some emotional moments, but some different kinds of emotional moments like the, the, the Tala um, death, I thought was really good. So I'm, I'm confident that uh, Andrew Stanton will give us a really solid finale. However, what I don't want to see is I don't want to see Riva turn to the light side and have a different objective or turn to the dark side and have a different objective. That to me is not worthy of being explored. I love the fact that we learned that she, her main goal is just to get revenge on Darth Vader. And if that's what her main goal is, and if she's using the dark side to do that, I don't need to see her have a redemption arc, you know? Yes, is that Star Wars? That's very Star Wars. Redemption arcs are very Star Wars. Is that what I would want from this particular character? Not really. Will they make it happen? Will they make it work? Maybe, but, um, but I, I, I'm nervous about that. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me as well as I thought it might have worked. But um, one of the things I did want to talk about from a writing perspective is that we have now reached in a six part episode series, we've reached plot point two. Plot point two basically takes everything towards its conclusion. And uh, plot point two is basically um, the Tala, or not Tala, uh, Riva figuring out that that um, Obi-Wan is going back to Tatooine. That raises the stakes an unbelievable amount because we know that Luke is back on Tatooine. The last shot of the, of the episode is the shot of Luke. Um, and we know that, that Obi-Wan's entire goal was to protect the twins, Leia and Luke, and specifically more so Luke. And so now we're going to get this really intense, you know, Vader can't figure that out. Um, and I still think that there's some things left with Leia. We didn't get a lot of Leia in this episode. The Leia that we did get was good, but we didn't get a lot of Leia in this episode. I loved seeing, um, I loved seeing uh, Haj, Haja, Haja, uh, that's played by, um, oh, I can't, I think of the guy's name. <laughs> the guy from Silicon Valley, the guy I really like. Um, uh, Kumail, Kumail. I don't know why I forgot his name. Blanking on his name, but love seeing um, Kumail. He's really funny. I enjoy it. It's an it's an odd humor to include in Star Wars, but I, I love it. Um, so yeah, I think this was a really really solid episode. I liked it a lot. Um, I don't think it's going to make me think that this this series is better than either of the two seasons we got of of The Mandalorian. But I do think that this series is better than Book of Boba Fett, and so that's kind of where it sits in my analysis of these things in terms of my personal opinion and again my personal opinion as i said in the beginning of the show is just for you and i to to talk about it's not for you to 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 uh i'd rather go and dig deeper into the storytelling so let me do that a little bit more plot point two then is them figuring that out which then says this is going to conclude either on tatooine or or the prevention of them getting to tatooine which i think is a really good way of raising the stakes for this final episode what will happen with Riva? Will she turn to the light side? Will she just try to get revenge on Vader in some way, shape, or form? Don't know. We do know that the Grand Inquisitor, um, who was the previous Grand Inquisitor before Riva, did not die. We did see that again. So that was not a canon problem that we had. I still think Leia is going to get a memory wipe of some kind at some point in time. So I think a lot of people are going to need that because they're going to need to say, if you know that Luke is on Tatooine, 
if you know that Obi-Wan is on Tatooine, that cannot that cannot go anywhere. That cannot exist in this universe because then Vader will know and then Vader will will do what Vader does. So and what he's been doing already. So I think that that's basically the conclusion that we're going to get is how do we get so that people don't know that this is true, that Luke is on Tatooine and that Obi-Wan is on Tatooine, uh, which would be really fun. And so plot point two is the thing, that moment that turns, rushes us towards the, the resolution of this particular series. And the resolution of this particular series, in my opinion, has to be around not letting people know that Luke and Obi-Wan are going to have a long-term presence on Tatooine, because that would just basically ruin ruin everything for um, for their secrecy. So yeah, we'll see. I like this episode a lot. I would probably give it on a scale of one to ten. I would say I'd probably give it a nine. I might even be able to, after a second or third viewing, give it a little bit higher than that. I have only viewed it the one time because um, when I'm doing a show on Monday morning, it's harder for me to turn around and watch it a couple times. So I did watch it one time. I'm excited to watch it again. I hope that you're excited to watch it again as well. Give me any thoughts that you had about any of this stuff. Write me an email at hi at reclamationsociety.com. Please go support Josh and all of his content. As for my own content, I'd love for you to read or listen to Death of a Bounty Hunter. If you're a fan of steampunk fantasy western mashups, we call them weird westerns, then please pick up a copy of our full cast audiobook, Death of a Bounty Hunter. It's about a desperate sheriff who will do anything to save his daughter and a bounty hunter who realizes he can no longer run from the truth. A link to deathofabountyhunter.com will be in the description or the show notes. Please support the show by picking up a copy. That is it today. That is it for today's show. Hopefully we'll have a much bigger show to talk about episode six. If you have a topic or a question you'd like for me to cover, please leave me a comment or shoot me an email hi at reclamationsociety.org I'd love to include your questions or topic ideas in a future show new episodes of the Story Geeks show drop every week both on YouTube and on your preferred podcast provider I release content all week long so I try to release the main show on Wednesdays but that even that doesn't always work so make, just make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any of the content that I'm releasing you can subscribe on YouTube or on your preferred podcast provider thanks for watching next week we will get more into the conclusion of obi-wan kenobi episode six and i'm still re-watching all of stranger things and i'm gonna do at least one show on season four and maybe all of the came before it as well stay tuned for all of that and i will see you on the next show bye